2: Ngoc Vietnam, a home, a cradle, a point of departure. The Vietnamese word Ngoc embraces the duality of land and water with an idea of home. Through a nuanced examination of the meaning of homeland and politics of belonging, Evan Le Esperdu Gandhi proposes Ngoc to understand complex positionality of refugee settlers on land suttered through the traumas of U.S. empire, militarization, and settler colonialism. Division in Area Studies has foreclosed conversations on how histories of settler colonialism and empire bring to light unexpected connections between indigenous people and settlers across the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans. By bringing together Vietnamese refugee settlers in Israel, Palestine, and Guam, Gandhi asked the difficult question of how we can imagine decolonial futurities when the creation of home for refugee settlers was predicated on the settler colonial project of dispossessing indigenous people. Drawing inspiration from New that embraces contradictions through relationality Gandhi Church both the Archipelago of U.S. Empire and Resistance to imagine decolonization based on fraught acknowledgment of histories and relationalities between people, land, and water. I am pleased to welcome Evan today at the New Books Network in Asian American Studies to talk about her new work, Archipelago of Resettlement, Vietnamese refugee settlers, and decolonization across Guam and Israel-Palestine. Evan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Thank you so much for being here. I'm really excited to be able to talk about your new book. Um, First, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write this book?
1: Yeah, sure. I'm happy to do so. So I am a second generation Vietnamese Filipina. Um, I grew up in Oceanside, Southern California, on the traditional homelands of the Luceno, Juanero, and Kumiai peoples, and actually right next to Camp Pendleton, um, which is a military base that processed Vietnamese refugees um, in 1975 after the Vietnam War. Um, and I am currently an assistant professor of Asian American studies at UCLA, um, and I'm situated on the ancestral, unceded, and traditional homelands of the Gabrielino Tongva peoples, also known as Tavangar. So I like to say that this book has two beginnings in a way. Um, So I first started writing this project when I was a PhD student in the rhetoric department at UC Berkeley. So my very first class that I took uh, as a graduate student in fall 2013 um, was comparative diasporas with Professor Daniel Boyarin. And in this class, we really thought about Jewish diaspora alongside Black Atlantic diaspora um, to critique Uh, forms of nationalism that were really tied to the nation-state structure, right? Um, And thinking more about expansive and transnational and diasporic forms of community building. So for this class, um, I was like, how am I going to connect my previous interest in Vietnamese refugees and Vietnamese refugee diaspora um, to the theories and concepts that we were discussing in this class, right, for my term paper, And through this, um, I actually kind of stumbled upon this very small community of Vietnamese refugees who were resettled in the state of Israel and became Vietnamese-Israeli citizens. Um, So this was one way to sort of tap into and be in conversation with a lot of the Jewish diaspora critiques of Zionism and the Zionist state. Um, And I realized that this case study of Vietnamese-Israelis um, was something that hadn't been written a lot about before, partially because it was a relatively small population of about 366 uh, Vietnamese refugees in Israel. And so it became a case study to open up larger questions that I had around um, indigeneity, uh, around decolonization politics, around diaspora, um, and how to think about Vietnamese refugee resettlement in conversation with those structures. So the second beginning um, for this book uh, is also tied to the second case study that the book looks like, right? So Vietnamese refugees who were processed um, in Guam, or Guam, an unincorporated uh, territory of the U.S. Um, since uh, 1898. So my mom and grandmother are actually Vietnamese refugees. Uh, they left. Vietnam in April, 1975. And after passing through a military base in the Philippines, they too were processed in Guam, um, under what became operation, new life, uh, which was run by the U S military, um, though had a lot of participation from the local, um, government of Guam and, um, over 112,000 Vietnamese refugees were processed in Guam during this uh, time period. And so I really wanted to think about and trace my own family history um, to these sites um, in relation to the ongoing tomorrow decolonization movement that is happening in Guam. Um, and again, you know, besides from the historian, Jana Lipman, a lot of people had also not talked about Guam's important role In the Vietnamese refugee uh, resettlement um, processes, you know, I think that a lot of focus is on the U.S. mainland, uh, which is where a lot of Vietnamese refugees ended up. Right. So thinking about Vietnamese Americans in the continental U.S., Um, But in that continental discourse, I think that we continue to overlook and overshadow, you know, these other spaces of U.S. militarism and U.S. empire, such as the island of Guam, um, that kind of fall out of our narratives and our analysis. Um, So I think it was also just paying homage to that history um, of Vietnamese refugees' relationality, right, with um, the island of Guam and the Chamorro people. Um thank you so much for a really thorough um you know
2: explanation and going back to how your project came about I was also really struck by how you know you really intentionally uh you know do not look at the U.S. the mainland, um, but you know, pay really careful attention to you know Guam and Israel Palestine as these other sites of you know U.S. militarization that is often overshadowed in the scholarly focus that really privileges the mainland as a site. Um and um, actually, when you uh, mention uh you know like uh Guam, um I was wondering whether you could actually um, speak to the audience a little bit about, you know, uh, your word choices, because obviously, like, the words are very po- politicized, and you mentioned this in your book as well about, you know, why you decided to use, for example, the word uh, guam instead of, like, Wahan and, you know, what are the political implications and considerations you went through when you were deciding on what terminologies to use in your book?
1: Yeah, thank you for that question. So as you say, you know, terms and terminologies are very vexed, um, particularly for spaces of contested land, right? So spaces of settler colonialism um, where there is an active and ongoing um, indigenous resistance movement. So for Guahan, right, which is the Chamorro term um, for the southernmost island of the Marianas archipelago, um, The sort of U.S. imposed term, right, or naming of the island is Guam, so G-U-A-M. And I decided to default to the term Guam um, for the majority of the book um, for several reasons. So one, you know, it is the key term um, that comes out of a lot of archival documents that I was in conversation with, um, as well as the term that most of my interlocutors for the oral histories um, were using. So it was something that I wanted to respect. But also, I wanted to clearly index the ongoing um, territorial and, quite frankly, colonial status um, of Guam, right? Um, That this vision of a decolonized Guam Um, of course, is happening in the sort of everyday uh, interactions and forms of resistance that are happening um, in Guam and in the diaspora. Um, But in terms of political status, you know, I didn't want to um, overlook or romanticize the fact that Guam is still um, a U.S. unincorporated territory. And so in the book project, I wanted to intentionally uh, reserve the term Guahan for explicit visions of a decolonized Guam. Um, So there are points in the book where I use the term Guahan instead, um, and it is very much in conversation with tomorrow as well as Vietnamese um, American uh, visions, um, both in politics as well as cultural production um, of what decolonization can look like in that space. Um, It's also, of course, you know, a conversation and a debate that I had in regards how to name the land, right, um, which is Palestine, uh, but which is also now the state of Israel. And, you know, I think that there are, of course, a lot of... um, Palestinian scholars and activists who intentionally name the land Palestine. Um, and that is something that I do intentionally do in parts of the book. But I also wanted to highlight that Palestinians had no political say over whether or not Vietnamese refugees were resettled in the state of Israel. So I wanted to index um, Israelis' power. Uh, in that decision, right, sort of unilateral decision making, um, and really highlight the positionality of Vietnamese Israelis, right? They are Israeli citizens and therefore implicated in Zionist policies of ongoing Palestinian dispossession and displacement. So Israel-Palestine, you know, again, is kind of a... um, vexed terminology that I try to use carefully uh, throughout the book to index the sort of ongoing contestations around the land, right? Um, As well as to sort of think about what would a binationalist future uh, for this space um, look like. Thank you so much for a really beautiful explanation as well. I
2: also, really appreciated your thoughtful discussion in the book about you know how you're respecting your interviewees as well as you know reflecting the archival documents as well as how you reserve the term Han for you know specifically talking about the colonial futurities. And as you said it so wonderfully, like you are indexing you know the ongoing colonial power by purposefully you know using the terms such as uh you know Guam and also Israel-Palestine to think about, you know, the binationalist future. So, yeah, I really appreciated your discussion on terminologies and its power. So my next question, um, was actually about the analytical framework, which I think would be really important for the audience as we, um, start to talk more about the content of the book. Um, so as we talked about in the beginning with, um, New York, uh, you propose it as an analytical framework, um, in the beginning, when you talk about uh, the myth of Vietnam and like how it emerged out of the consummation of land and water, which was a really beautiful mythology. um, and I was wondering whether you could tell the audience a little bit more about New York and why you decided to use it as your analytical framework.
1: Sure. Thank you for the question. So New um, means several things in Vietnamese. So first, it means water, but it also means country and homeland. So, I was really interested in this duality or non opposition between land and water, um, and thought that this was a helpful analytic for thinking about deterritorialized um, understandings of land and water and space, right? Which really got at this question of fluidity and movement, um, while also sort of acknowledging that land is a key analytic for, example, indigenous um, decolonization movements. Um, so it was something that emerged from Vietnamese diasporic epistemologies, and that was something that was important to me. Um, to really theorize alongside and be grounded in the epistemologies of the communities that I was in conversation with um, and really trying to think alongside um, in this text. So maybe just to explain, um, you know, the Vietnamese creation story that you alluded to. Um, So Aukha, the mountain fairy, had uh, 100 children with Laknam One, the sea dragon king, right? So here we have this sort of union, right, of the mountains and the land with the sea and the water. Um, But out of that union, it actually produced uh, division and conflict, right? So actually the half of the children um, ended up moving back to the mountains and half of the children ended moving back to the sea. And so I think that it's also um, a myth that talks about union but also division and that's something that I wanted to hold that complexity right in the project as well. Um, so I think that's another way that the analytic functions right There's always I think this aspiration for, decolonial solidarities that underlines the project, but I also didn't want to shy away from the very real divisions um, and structural antagonisms that come out of uh, what I'm calling the refugee settler condition. Yeah, exactly.
2: And that's a really transitions perfectly to the next question that I have in mind. Um, And, you know, this like duality um, of, you know, union and division that in a way, this um, analytic also holds together so beautifully. Um, So you are theorizing, you know, refugee settler condition in your book. And I was wondering whether you could tell us more about that.
1: Yeah. So the refugee settler condition I use as a concept to think about the vexed positionality of refugee subjects. So in my case, Vietnamese refugees, but I think that the term and the analytic can circulate more broadly. So thinking about the vex positionality of refugee subjects who were resettled or get citizenship in particular in settler colonial states, right? And how that process and that citizenship is predicated on the unjust dispossession of Indigenous peoples. Um, And so really it's imbued and motivated by this question of what happens when forcibly displaced refugees are resettled in settler colonial states, right? And really, what is their ethical relationality to ongoing Indigenous sovereignty movements? That's the real sort of decolonial or political question um, that motivates me. And so, you know, theoretically, I really was interested in putting conversations that were happening in critical refugee studies in relation to conversations happening in settler colonial and in indigenous studies, um, because I think that they're not always uh, in such direct um relation or conversation with each other, though I think that the fields have a lot to learn from one another. So critical refugee studies, which really looks at the refugee figure as a form of analytical critique Um, to critique larger structures of power, such as empire, war, and militarism. Also thinking about the refugee as a complex being and a storied agent, right, who can forge their own stories um, that we need to attend to. Um, But the figure of the refugee, I think, also highlights some of the limitations of a nation-state structure, which is predicated on this division between who is included in the nation and who is excluded or who is stateless um, and therefore doesn't access uh, rights um, or human rights or even the sort of uh, acknowledgement of the complexity of one's full being um, who are outside of the nation, right? And so I really wanted to think about how critical refugee studies offers us you know, that critique of a nation state order but settler colonial indigenous studies hones in more particularly to think about the settler colonial state, right? So what happens when that nation state sovereignty is predicated on indigenous dispossession, genocide, displacement, exclusion, right? So I really wanted to put refugee Uh, forms of forced displacement in relation to indigenous forms of forced displacement to think about that relationality, while again, really attending to that structural antagonism of once refugees do get citizenship, right, or once they are incorporated into the settler colonial state, then they have to attend to their vexed relation um, to those who are still considered outside of the space of that settler colonial state, right, Um, which is uh, indigenous folks.
2: Yeah exactly yeah and uh, you know throughout your book um i was really um struck by how you draw relationality so you know like uh, on the one hand you do you know really pay attention to the structural antagonism um, but then also you look at um, you know the instances of connections and relationalities that happen uh, most often through uh, cultural production as well as um, interviews that uh, you conduct with um, you know your uh, interviewees um, so I was actually wondering whether you could um, tell us more about uh, Um, you know, like uh, the relationships uh, that you had with your interviewees and, uh, um, you know, how you theorize, like, relationalities um, through, uh, you know, reading, like, different poems as well as, uh, you know, listening to the stories told by Chamorro activists as well as um, different documentaries and poems by, you know, Vietnamese-Americans in Guam and uh, Israel-Palestine.
1: Yeah. So maybe I will talk a little bit first about the oral histories that I conducted. So, um, I had done a lot of archival research, um, but archives, you know, I think are told from the perspective of those in power. Right. Um, so I wanted to conduct oral histories to really think about and understand the lived experiences of refugee and indigenous displacement. Um, but I think that, you know, actually I had a harder time engaging with and really figuring out how to write alongside and write about um, the oral histories that I conducted, um, which is to say, I think that I was trained in a particular modality of critique in my um dissertation program, right, or my uh, graduate program in rhetoric. Um, so in some ways, I felt really um, well trained to analyze the structures of power that were coming across in the sort of government documents and the sort of um, militarized and political political rhetoric that um, U.S. military as well as Zionist leaders were articulating and how they talked about Vietnamese refugees. Um, but a lot of the oral histories that I conducted with be- resettled Vietnamese refugees in Guåhan, as well as in Israel Palestine, for those folks, there was a sincere sense of gratitude towards the settler colonial state, right, um, and a very intense attachment to the settler colonial state as the space of resettlement, right. Of course, there were also other forms of dissent and critique. Um, But for the most part, there was a kind of sense of wariness, right? Or concern or um, uncertainty about uh, tomorrow decolonization movements or the Palestinian liberation movement. So I wanted to think about, you know, how can I really attend to um, and take seriously these stories and lived experiences of displacement from Vietnam? Right. Um, And, you know, this is something that in chapter two, I take a step back and think about as refugee settler desire, right? Actually think about those affective attachments um, to the settler colonial state and to grapple with them. Um, But, you know, it was actually something that I had to take some time away from the project before I was able to uh, enter more fully in conversation, I think, with those oral histories that I conducted with resettled Vietnamese refugees in particular. Um, You know, they were oral histories that I conducted while I was still a graduate student, but I don't think that they were fully integrated into the dissertation version of the project. Um, And it took a couple years, you know, after... I had graduated um, and was working on the book manuscript revisions. That I find, I was able to find, you know, a more um, careful and respectful um, way to attend. You know, I think to these stories and to interweave them into the project. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I
2: really appreciated that because um, also in my own research, um, you know, I think as a researcher, um, you know, we are trained to really see this like structural power and to critique them. And you know, when our interviewees say something that maybe doesn't match our expectation, or you know, like show like effective attachment to these forms of power, like um, uh, I think um, for me, like it posed that um like, a concern about, like, oh, so how do I then, you know, like, um, integrate this into my research? And I thought that, you know, you did a really wonderful, you know, like, work that really respects their voices while, you know, highlighting um, the structural elements that I uh, really appreciated. Um, so uh, kind of going back to, you know, what you were talking about, archives, uh, you know, and how uh, it is, you know, produced by people with power, um, I did also want to ask you a question about archives as well, because, you know, I do think that you do a really wonderful job um, in a way relating, you know, the archival, you know, research with like the oral histories, you know, through what you discuss with the archipelago of, you know, resettlement in a way like holding both the resistance part as well as militarization. Can you tell us more about your journey with the official archives and how the archive as a dominant institution, you know, shaped the types of materials and stories you were able to access?
1: Yeah, so I was able to visit three main archives. Um, There are a couple uh, smaller archives that I access either online or in shorter visits, Um, but I want to highlight three that were integral to the project. So the Institute of Palestine Studies in Ramallah, um, as well as the Israel State Archive, and then the third main one was the Micronesian Area Research Center uh, at the University of Guam in Guahan. Um, The first archive that I actually went to was the Institute of Palestine Studies in Ramallah. Um, And this was a really interesting space because I think that the idea and practice of archiving um, is really one of a expression of state sovereignty and um, sort of independence, right? Um, Because in order for a state to archive, its own documents, um, it is a political sort of cultivation or curation, right, of what are the documents that can really narrate um, the history um, as well as the power of that state. So I think that it was really interesting to see um, this really real expression, right, of Palestinian sovereignty that was happening um, in this archive and in this institute, So I was directed to uh, the Institute of Palestine Studies by one of my interlocutors. Um, I was really interested in thinking about Vietnam-Palestine solidarity, uh, particularly within the Cold War and Third World uh, solidarity movement that happened in the late 60s and early 70s in particular. And this interlocutor told me, oh, there's this uh, speech by Ho Chi Minh, who is there, which is uh, in the archive, um, in which he expresses solidarity with the Palestinian liberation struggle. Um, so I went to find this speech <laughs> in this archive and actually found a much larger uh, wealth of documents um, in the archive. So in particular, I was uh, accessing these anthology, anthologies, That we entitled the International Documents um, of Palestine. And these were really, uh, again, sort of curations of thinking about Palestine as a um, space and as a power that had international and um, international relations, right, with other political parties, with other decolonization struggles, anti-colonial struggles um, with other states. Um, so thinking about Palestine as an international, right, sort of body um, or institution. Um, and by going through these anthologies um, from 1967 all the way up to 1975, I was other able to track uh, these other invocations of how Vietnam and Palestine intersected, um, whether it was in the speeches of other stakeholders um, or in direct addresses um, between Vietnam and Palestine. So that was something that was really exciting to me. So um, I want to talk now about my experiences with the Israel State Archive, right? Um, So actually around the time that I was doing research, um, Israel made the decision to actually close its archives um, to researchers to people who were interested in accessing the archives and set up a very sort of explicit um, body or structure of mediation, uh, which is to say that people couldn't um, directly access the archive. You had to go to the archivist and tell them what the topic you were interested in looking at or researching was. um, And then they would do a level of uh, curation, right? Um, And it was unclear how much um, sort of editing and cutting and leaving out they do, right, in this process. But basically they go into the archive, they select the documents that they want you to see, and then they give them to you. And then there is kind of this level of you have to trust or not trust that what they give you is comprehensive, right? So I think in some ways for this project, um, I was fortunate that the state of Israel is actually quite proud of its magnanimity and in, in, in its humanity and its sort of a humanitarianism, I guess, um, in resettling uh, Vietnamese refugees in 1977 and 1979. Um, so, you know, whoever uh, was in power in the Israel State Archive was actually quite open into sharing a lot of these documents, um, including secret telegrams that were passed back and forth, um, sort of government correspondence about the very real debates that were actually happening Um, in regards to whether or not um, Israel were going to accept not only the first wave, but then the second and third wave of Vietnamese refugees into the state of Israel. So in a lot of ways that sort of back and forth and those internal debates that were happening sort of were able to counter the official state narrative of, oh, of course, you know, we wanted to accept Vietnamese refugees. We, as the state of Israel, identify as a nation of, in particular, Holocaust refugees, and therefore we are in a particular position to identify uh, with these uh, displaced Vietnamese refugees. Of course, this official narrative. Um, we're really a explicitly alighting and occluding the ongoing processes of Palestinian displacement and refugeehood and exile, right? So really thinking about, again, the sort of state power and nation state uh, building power of an archive um, such as the Israel State Archive. And the last place that I visited um, our key archival site was the Micronesian Area Research Center at the University of Guam. Um, I had a wonderful experience conducting research there on Operation New Life um, and uh, Guam's role in the Vietnamese refugee resettlement process. Um, There were sort of clear boxes that were already had been set aside um, to cultivate a lot of the Um, newspaper documents, for example, as well as government documents and photos um, that had to do with Vietnamese refugee um, resettlement. And so it was great to see, you know, sort of a day by day how these um, newspapers, as well as government officials, um, were writing about um, and grappling with um, Vietnamese refugees, um, as well as to compare and contrast, you know, how the uh, explicit U.S. military newspapers uh, might have represented Operation New Life a little bit differently than some of the um, civilian newspapers, such as um, the PDN or Pacific Daily News.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail, from accepting payments to managing inventory Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
2: Thank you so much for your really, like, thoughtful and also really in-depth, you know... Um Thought processes that you had as you analyzed uh, some of these documents, as well as like the gatekeeping that happens, especially with the Israel State Archives and the mediated information and representation that often elides on displacement, ongoing displacement that happens. Um, Thank you so much for that. And, you know, when you were uh, talking about, you know, the Institute of Palestinian Studies and, you know, the solidarity, like the extensive solidarity documents that you have found. Um, I was actually thinking about how, you know, comparative studies is often very difficult. Um, And um, people also criticize comparative studies for, you know, often like flattening out uh, differences. And I think there are a lot of opposition that you can um, find in scholarship. But I thought that, you know, you did a really uh, compelling job of, uh, you know, illustrating like why it matters and, you know, why you intentionally decided to do a comparative study. Um, so can you tell us more about, you know, your thought process, as well as if you received actually any opposition about doing comparative studies um, and, you know, why you decided that, you know, like, you know, in the end, like drawing the connections between settler colonial condition is important for a decolonial project.
1: Um, I don't know if i received any direct opposition yet. <laughs> so I think it was more sort of a questioning uh, process that my dissertation committee had for me, um, as well as, uh, you know, sort of in the writing um, and the book revision uh, process as well. Um, you know, so I think that people acknowledge that this is a risky project, right? Um, There is a certain element of risk of really being able to attend to the different communities um, in which you are in conversation with, right? So I have a familial um, and political and community relation to Vietnamese refugees um, and the Vietnamese refugee community. Um, But prior to this project, you know, I didn't have um, a direct conversation um, or connection to the tomorrow diaspora, um, as well as tomorrow's in Guam, um, as well as the Palestinian liberation movement. So, you know, thinking about activism around Palestine, which, of course, has been going on for decades, you know, it wasn't something that I was really introduced to until actually graduate school. Um, In particular, you know, the summer of 2014, thinking about the airstrikes of Gaza, it really, um, you know, I think prompted me to think about my positionality as a second generation Vietnamese Filipina and really think about, okay, how can I um, use my not only political skills, but also research skills to really attend to Um, how I can think about my role in this Palestinian solidarity movement, right? So I think that was also one of the political impulses um, for this project. But, I think a lot of the questions that I got were, you know, why are you looking at these um, sort of marginal spaces, right, of U.S. militarism and U.S. empire, Um, particularly because so much of the Vietnamese refugees ended up in the continental U.S.? You know, I think there are a lot of questions of why don't you sort of center, you know, again, recenter um, the continental U.S., um, within your project, and that was something that I really wanted to, you know, as you note, <coughs> draw people's attention to these other occluded spaces, right, um, that have fallen out of dominant narratives of Vietnamese refugee resettlement uh, in a lot of ways. So I think attending to um, Guahan and Israel Palestine, which are. you know, increasingly discussed in Asian American studies and American studies, though I think a lot more attention still needs to um, be uh, directed at them to think about the ways that their particular histories of, excuse me, to think about how their particular histories of U.S. militarism and U.S. Uh, intervention, you know, really force us, I think, in Asian American studies to rethink how we think about U.S. empire. So I wanted to put, you know, Israel-Palestine and Guohan in conversation to think about of spaces of U.S. empire that have been overlooked, Um, That are seeming on the margins of these grand historical narratives, but that putting them in conversation can illuminate um, what I call or think about as an archipelago of US empire, right? Or to think about the archipelagic nature of US empire, to think about how US intervention in the Vietnam War is actually linked to U.S. military buildup in Kwanhan, um, as well as U.S. military aid, financial and political aid to the state of Israel, um, that really um, started accelerated in that same Cold War uh, moment, um, right? So thinking about these historical and political linkages. Um, But I also wanted to think about an archipelago of um, trans-indigenous resistance. And I'm borrowing that term trans-indigenous from Chadwick Allen, Um, which is to say, you know, of course, all of these place-based movements for decolonization Um, are also linked with one another, right? So thinking about how the Chamorro decolonization movement is linked to the Palestinian liberation struggle. um, And one way we can think about those conceptual and political linkages is to trace the material passage of the Vietnamese refugee figure to these sites, right? And thinking about how they are interrelated, um, not only through these um tendrils of US militarism and US empire um but also these interlinked forms of forced displacement and political resistance yeah um
2: thank you so much for this yeah again like really like beautiful like Interweaving and you know illustrating the relationalities because yeah I think you know one of the main points in your book about you know how the militarization um you know and in the intervention is like linked uh, you know like really linked these like quote unquote like marginal spaces actually together and then showed how it was actually like fundamental to the process um uh, which I think is also a really important intervention that you're making about you know why we need to like these. De- center the the mainland and you know to understand like why the marginal is like not marginal when we look, think about the intersection and interconnection was a really I think a salient point that I think really resonated with me as well and I wanted to actually uh, connect this conversation about you know um, so in your book you talk about your methodology and you know why you decided to do archipelagic history rather than you Know, transnational or world history um, so you talked about this a little bit with the previous question but can you tell us more about you know what is archipelagic history and you know how this is allowing you to really center relationalities?
1: Awesome. Thank you for the question. So archipelagic history is something that I discuss and theorize most explicitly in chapter one. Um, But it is is a methodology that I think informs the rest of the book project and how to read, you know, the rest of the book. Um, So as you mentioned, you know, archipelagic history, I wanted to think about it as a way to trace connections between spaces on the seeming margins right of grand historical narratives in order to draw attention to south-south relations so thinking about the exchange of political knowledge military strategy solidarity rhetoric um, but also intimate relations and connections between subjects of the global south that were resistant to aggression right from the global north So I think that archipelagic history upends linear notions of causal temporality. I think it allows us to attend to actually concurrent reverberations of war and imperialism across um, multiple sites. Um, And, you know, as you mentioned, unlike other models of writing history that I was reading about, so thinking about world history, global history, transnational history, or even diasporic history, um, archipelagic history is not organized around a particular empire, a particular superpower or nation state or ethnic diaspora. Right. So thinking about something that can move more um, rhizomatically, you know, uh, maybe Um And thinking about the archipelagic, you know, as a form as well, that was emerging from particular sites of analysis, right? So again, really attending to and learning from the epistemologies of the communities um, that I was in conversation with, with this project, right? So just to go back a little bit, you know, I wanted to think about how Guam, um, which is a U.S. territory, Um, is actually part of a larger Marianas archipelago, right, or a larger archipelagic tomorrow homeland. Um, And to reattend to that archipelagic imaginary, right, is a decolonial um, sort of project in and of itself because it speaks against this division of um, political division, which has been going on for centuries, right, of Guam from the rest of the northern Mariana Islands. Um, and you know, Palestine is less obviously an archipelago in the literal sense, um, but I was really drawing from this map—a uh, map, a map um, by the artist Julian Busak to think about the archipelago of Eastern Palestine, but more broadly to think about the archipelagic nature of Palestinian sovereignty, right? And how these Palestinian life worlds are increasingly Um, sort of being divided up by um, Israeli and Zionist um, encroachment, right? So the non-contiguous forms of Palestinian life worlds. So I think the archipelagic as well connects back to this concept of nook that we had begun with, right? So this sort of land-water dialectic that is imbued in the term nook is also something that I think is informed by this idea of the archipelagic as something that is made up of both land and water and therefore can be really rooted in place-based land struggles um, as well as having this undercurrent, right, of water, fluidity, movement, waves, um, which is informing this sort of methodologic, methodologic methodology, methodology, <laughs> methodology, informing this methodology of um, archipelagic uh, history. So, you know, in particular, in that chapter, I wanted to trace um, different forms of U.S. military empire across oceans and continents in order to really chart how Vietnam, Palestine, and Guam were entangled in the U.S. imperial imagination between in particular in this project, 1967 and 1975. So those dates are important because I really wanted to think about even prior to Vietnamese refugee displacement and migration, which happens post-1975, so after the fall of Saigon, right? How are these spaces actually entangled, right? In the US military imaginary um, and US imperial imaginary? Um, And this was one way to think about how this entanglement actually prefigured the routes that post-1975 Vietnamese refugees were taken, right, after displacement in the aftermath of the U.S. war uh, in Vietnam. So that chapter one, you know, looks at that solidarity rhetoric between Vietnam and Palestine that I mentioned in relation to the Institute of Palestine Studies archive, Um, But it also looks at oral histories with tomorrow Vietnam War veterans. Um, So thinking about these intimate relations um, that actually exceed in a lot of ways um, how the U.S. military was positioning Guam, um, but also in particular U.S. military bases in Guam, so Anderson Air Force Base, as well as Naval Station Guam, um, thinking about that dominant way that Guam was positioned as this militarized space that made intervention into Vietnam, you know, on a sort of practical and logistical level, actually possible. Um, but I think that, you know, these tomorrow um, Vietnam War veterans, um, they're sort of intimate and quotidian uh, romances as well as friendships, you know, with Vietnamese um, military focus, as well as civilians. Um, offers us another way to think about, you know, those connections that were made um, under these um, structures of war and settler colonialism and empire building. Yeah. Um,
2: Yeah, thank you so much for that. And, uh, you know, your thought on... uh, you know, archipelagic history and, you know, how that really allows you to, you know, along with New York, really center your analysis on, like, land-based struggles, um, as well as, you know, how the oral histories, in a way, really highlight the quotidian, you know, connections and friendships that, uh, in a way, um, really, like, um, that really go beyond you know the structural narratives that we often see uh, you know in, in the archives that which yeah I also really appreciated as well. And that brings me to you know how you also you know analyze uh, the poems and you know also like a documentary on uh Ban Win uh, um to rethink decolonization through land politics. Um can you tell us a little bit more about the importance of these type of cultural works um, by all uh, the important poets like Ben Wyn and um, how they illustrate the importance of, you know, land, water, and histories and reimagining solidarity.
1: Yeah, for sure. So definitely, this is a very uh, interdisciplinary project. You know, I was Um, engaging with archival documents as well as oral histories. But cultural production was also a very uh, important form of um, a culture, thinking about cultural production as a way to theorize, you know, alongside um, these communities, um, but also for giving us visions of what decolonial, um, solidarities could look like right um, so as I mentioned you know in a lot of the oral histories that I conducted with um, Vietnamese refugees in Guahan and as well as in israel-palestine you um, These connections and these solidarities weren't happening on a sort of mass scale, right, in terms of social movement building yet, right? And so the first part of the project was really attending to why that was happening, right? Why did we have these structural antagonisms? Why was there this uh, intense feelings and affects of refugee settler desire to identify with a settler state, So I wanted to turn to cultural production, though, for these visions of what decolonial futurities could look like, right? I don't think that in any way they are foreclosed. Um, And so uh, Raymond Williams' concept of structures of feelings were really helpful for me in this regard, right? So thinking about emergent um, affects as well as Feelings and political visions, and what he calls structures of feelings that were not quite there, right, in the social realm yet, in terms of social movements. Um, But we can see hints of it that are rising up and are erupting, right, into our present realities. Um, And so, as you mentioned, some of the cultural productions that I look at um, is the poetry of uh, Vietnamese-Israeli Van Wing, so her volume, um, The Truffle Eye. Um, I really want to think about the exilic affects in her poems, uh, which really, I think, push against this idea of a successful Vietnamese refugee um, resettlement and identification with the Zionist-Israeli state, and in particular to put her poetry um, in conversation with and read it alongside um, Palestinian poetry, right? So in particular, I look at Maureen Bargotti's um, I Saw Ramallah, which is this long form um, sort of memoir poem, Um, and thinking about these uh, ways that these exilic affects um, and exilic poetics can critique um, a nation state structure um, and thinking about ongoing forms of exile and displacement um, that are routed through Nook, right as an analytic of deterritorialization, right as this land water politics that can disrupt a nation state model of um, community building and organization, um, and the other, you know, sort of film that I look at in that chapter, chapter six, um, is entitled "The Journey of Van Wing." So, thinking about in this film how Bun um, Wing, the poet, as well as her father, Huai Mi Wing, go back to Vietnam and they actually tried to reclaim their ancestral lands that they were forced to give up and surrender when they fled Vietnam as anti communist refugees, right? So, after they fled, you know, these lands were expropriated by the post war communist state um, of Vietnam and redistributed, right? And so I think that this gives us one way to think about how the refugee settler condition is also traveling, right, diasporically, archipelagically, across different states. Um, And so maybe if solidarity between Vietnamese Israelis and and Palestinians within the, um, you know, sort of bounded nation state of the state of Israel Sometimes that might feel so impossible, right? But if we think broadly and more um, and routed through these routes of nook, right? I want to think about how this film gives us a way to think about how when the refugee settler condition and Vietnamese refugees travel back to their homeland um, in Vietnam, for example, and actually translate the vocabulary of VEX land contestations from the Israel-Palestine context back to Vietnam um, and are engaging in their own um, sort of land reclamation struggles, right, in some ways that are very similar to Palestinian struggles for the right of return, right? The right to return to their ancestral villages and homelands um, and farmlands, etc. And so thinking about how these archipelagic movements, right, um, and the translations and resonances that they open up, Um, can be one way to think about these uh, decolonial futurities and solidarities that you are mentioning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, thank you so much for that. And um, I also just loved
2: how this like idea of translation was, you know, like used in like many different ways in both metaphorical and also like material ways in which you really connect yeah the Palestinian idea of return as well as you know the refugee settlers you know like idea of reclamation with the vexed condition of ongoing struggles to really um imagine uh, the possibilities of uh, you know decolonial futurity so yeah I really loved you know like how you use the idea of um, translation in your book as well um before I uh, ask you the traditional NBN question about your next project, um, I wanted to, uh, you know, ask you uh, actually more about like decolonization. Um, because um, in the conclusion, um, you talk about how you know there's also a danger of co-optation in narratives when you um, talk about how you know like the corporations are also kind of like reimagining like water, you know, like as like a place of settlement. Um, so there is this, you know, like again like duality and like a danger of co-optation of narratives. So yeah, when you were um talking about, you know, decolonization, um, I wanted to ask you more about you know, um all these like intimate encounters that you kind of saw in your oral histories as well as cultural productions and whether, you know, they're uh, like what kind of, in a way, like decolonial, like methodologies, um, you have been seeing, um, in the book that you wanted to mention, uh, other than the one that you just spoke of right now with uh translation.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I am really interested in these quotidian um forms of cultural production, as well as you mentioned interaction. Right, we can think about. Oral history itself is a kind of narrative um, and narrative building, right? How does one narrate one's life um, and where what's go- where one is going, right? That's also a way to narrate different uh, political visions for the future. Um, so maybe another you know text that I will highlight um, is a blog um, by a uh, mixed Vietnamese tomorrow. Um, she was a student at the University of Guam when she wrote it, but now she's actually a teacher, Bianca Wing. Um, And while she was a student at the University of Guam, she wrote what was called the Decolonization Conversation Blog. Um, And I think this was important because, you know, again, I wanted to think about cultural production more expansively, right? It's not just the published poems, and it's not just, you know, the documentaries that win awards and circulate um, transnationally. Um, But it's also these uh, really Quotinian um, embodied forms of narrative, right? That individuals put out on the internet um, and that are then archi- archived more ephemerally, right? In the digital space. And so I was really interested in how she was thinking about decolonization, um, not only from the perspective of her um, tomorrow heritages um, and those inheritances from her mother's side of the family, But also thinking about how this question of decolonization that is ongoing in Guam and in Guahan is actually also important for the Vietnamese refugee uh, side of her family and those inheritances, right, from her father's side of the family, Um, which is to say, thinking about how, you know, U.S. militarism, as I mentioned, is in Vietnam, is connected to U.S. military buildup in Guahan. So we need to think about these processes, but also political struggles as interlinked. Oh, thank you so much for like,
2: again, like, you know, highlighting like many different forms of cultural production, as well as the importance of, you know, like quotidian forms on intimate connections that really um, show us the decolonial possibilities of decolonial uh, futurity. Um, so I've taken up a lot of your time. So I wanted to conclude this podcast with the traditional MBN question, which is um, what is the next project you're working on?
1: Yeah, thanks for the question. So um, I'm working on two projects right now. So the first is an edited anthology uh, with my wonderful co-editor, uh, Vin Wing. Um, and it's called, it's a Routledge Handbook. So it's a Routledge Handbook of refugee narratives. So I have loved working on this project. You know, we have about 38 chapters um, that we are editing and putting together into a collection but it has given me an opportunity to think about refugee narratives and refugee political possibilities um, more expansively, right? So sort of outside of just the Vietnamese refugee case. Um, So we're interested in opening up, you know, the figure of the refugee to think about not only those who have UNHCR recognition, but thinking about asylum seekers, you know, displaced indigenous Communities um, and nations, um, thinking about Black fugitives and the afterlives of slavery, um, thinking about climate refugees, people who are considered economic migrants, right? And how racial capitalism is usually not seen as a credible fear of um, you know persecution in one's homeland. So thinking about refugees more expansively, but also thinking about narratives more expansively, right? So not only, you know, the traditional literature and film, as I had mentioned before, but also thinking about oral histories and archival documents, letters to the editor, you know, music, uh, data narratives, um, (laughs) video games, uh, more expansively, right, to think about these different forms of narratives. So It has been such a wonderful learning process, I think, for me, um, you know, to think about also these larger geographical um, and historical narratives that, again, are preceding the 1951 uh, Refugee Convention, um, but also thinking about these uh, more forward-looking and, um, you know, very unfortunately unfolding sort of refugee um, sort of migrations, right? So thinking from... Burma, Myanmar, Rohingya refugees, you know, thinking about Afghan refugees. Um, and more recently, you know, of course, the sort of ongoing conflict in uh, Ukraine and Ukrainian refugees that are being displaced, um, as well as, you know, sort of ongoing um, displacements from places like Sudan and Eritrea as well. So it's been a really um, great learning experience. Um, The second project, you know, that I'm thinking about, so the second book project or the monograph, um, is broadly uh, thinking about Southern um, connections and the archipelagic movement, you know, I think we can say of Southern discourses and resonances and significations of what the South means. Um, So in particular, I'm interested in looking at Discursive and political and literary connections between South Vietnam, South Korea and the US South, um, which is to say the southern spaces that are invoked in these different civil war conflicts um, and how they actually fall out, I think, in a lot of ways out of Global South studies um, and global South conversations because they are often painted as, um, you know, conservative or anti-communist in a particular way. Um, but I'm interested in thinking about, um, you know, the South is not only the U S South, for example, it's not only this space of, um, sort of Confederate white nationalism that we see erupting, you know, even today. Um, and thinking about the South as well as, um, you know, a splice of the afterlives of slavery and, and Black resistance, right? Um, and Black um, liberation struggles as a way to inform how we think about the South, perhaps um, in an Asian Cold War context. So thinking about some of the parallels as well as differences between U.S. military intervention and South Korea, Um, as well as South Vietnam. So very early stages of the project. You know, right now I'm really cultivating and curating, you know, a collection of cultural production that is tracing these Southern parallels and Southern discourses. Um, But I'm interested in, you know, what other methodologies um, this project will um, sort of invite as well. Yeah, thank you so much, Evan. Like
2: both sound really exciting, and I think definitely the anthropology. Like anyone who reads your book, um, the listeners, um, yeah, definitely need to like check out this anthropology. You know, like edited a uh, volume afterwards to you know understand more about refugee narratives as well as different forms that it takes. And your question about uh, you know the archipelagic histories that connect the sounds together also just sound really exciting as well and i look forward to reading it when it comes out (laughs) thank you so much again evan for being here and um thank you for a really wonderful uh you know a podcast where you really elaborated you know your beautiful monograph and its important contributions
1: thank you so much for inviting me and i really appreciated this conversation thank you